We're going to look at this sermon by Jesus in Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if this phrase means anything to you. Thus saith the Lord. The phrase means a whole lot to me. Thus saith the Lord. But I want, I want you to feel the weight that I feel when I think of that phrase in light of this text. Thus saith the Lord. This, this text starts with Jesus opened his mouth. Here, here we have the, the un- mediated words of God. This is, a, this is a sermon directly from the lips of the capital P prophet. The, the word that became flesh is now preaching the word. The, the, one, the one who has the words of eternal life Preached this. The, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power preached these words. Thus saith the Lord. And he's saying it to us. He's the one that opens his mouth and teaches us, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. I want you to take care of how you hear this morning. And as over the next couple of weeks we preach from this sermon, and you hear, Thus saith the Lord, I want you to take care of how you hear. These are the words of the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. This, this is one of the this is the first of five discourses by Jesus that sort of divides up the, the gospel of Matthew. There's a handout that's that's floating around there. I I made that more of a study guide to take home with you. No fill in the blanks. It's just too much we we, we need to fly through. It's too much to meditate in one sitting. But here we have the words of Jesus, the first of five discourses that section off the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus and ends with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these two narratives sort of wrap or bookend these sections. These sections that all have this pattern. We've got a narrative and a discourse, a narrative and a discourse. And between each one, there's this little bridge to the next section. That's what we've got here. We've had a narrative, and now we're listening to a sermon, and this is going to end with this bridge. And when Jesus finished these sayings, and it's going to move on. 
And so this discourse, this sermon is sort of, there is an intersection going on of some themes that we've seen. We've talked about Jesus as the true Israel. We've talked about exile and exodus. We've talked about kingdom. Jesus has talked about these things. Matthew has talked about these things. And Matthew is portraying Jesus as the true Israel. He's doing that by revealing him not only as the scripture fulfiller, but also he's actually living out a, a recapitulation of this redoing of the life of Israel. Particularly this concept of exile and exodus from Egypt. We've seen this pattern. Jesus, like Israel, is the, the, the promised son of Abraham. And we got Herod, like Pharaoh, he's trying to stop this whole thing, trying to kill the baby boys. And Jesus, just like Moses, the deliverer of Israel, is miraculously rescued by God. Jesus, like Israel, is God's firstborn son, called out of Egypt to pass through the waters with this physical manifestation of God's Spirit. And through the waters and into the wilderness to be tested. And Israel fails, but Jesus perfectly succeeds and defeats the devil, though they would meet again. We see in Exodus, Moses calling out leaders and Jesus now calling out disciples. And so what happens next in the history of Israel? Well, they come to a mountain and God speaks. He says, I redeemed you. Obey me. And you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom. And then God outlines, beginning at the Ten Commandments, how his people should live and how they should serve him. And what happens now in the life of Jesus? He comes to a mountain and he speaks. And what does he say? These words, the Sermon on the Mount. How his redeemed people are to live and to serve him. And so we got this theme of exile and exodus coming together in this sermon. Then we've got the theme of kingdom coming together. Matthew's presenting Jesus as king of the kingdom of heaven. This long promised son of David is here. This throne is going to be established forever. The kingdom of God is being announced. People are being called to repentance and faith. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Come follow me. Jesus says, and crowds are coming, and disciples are assembled, and what happens? Jesus sits down, and he begins to speak with absolute authority on how his citizens are to live in his kingdom. And that's exactly what this sermon is. This sermon on the mount is an explanation of what it means to repent and follow Jesus. This is what it means. This is the explanation of what it means to repent. Repent from sin and rebellion to what? To hearing these words of mine, he says. And obeying them. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. 
He says, follow me. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He tells us how to pray, how, how to fast, how to give. He tells us not to store up our treasures in heaven. He tells us all these things as we sit at his feet. And so this offers the, the great question of the ages. Who's Jesus addressing in this sermon? He's addressing his disciples, those who follow him. He's addressing Christians. This is a really important understanding of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians. This is for you. Notice the crowds. Back at the end of chapter 24, notice the great crowds. It says, great crowds followed him. Man, what an opportunity to preach the gospel to these great crowds. And how does Jesus respond to the crowds? He withdraws. Like he does so often. He withdraws from the crowds to teach his disciples. We see this happen over and over in, in Matthew. And how many times do we see in the Gospels how these crowds are just following Jesus to get something from Jesus? To see some miracles, to get some miracles, to get their belly filled. And so we see here in verse 1, he says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And he sat down, and his disciples came to him. You see this distinction that's being drawn between the followers of Jesus and the world. You see it, you see it even in this imagery. You see this, this hillside where Jesus leaves the crowds and his disciples come and sit at his feet with crowds still gathered around. Now, is there, is there evangelism going on in this sermon? Yes. You've got devoted followers of Jesus sitting at his feet and curious crowds eavesdropping on the greatest sermon ever Recorded. But I want you to know that this sermon is directed to his disciples. Matt, look at the scene. Look at the text. It says, when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth and he taught them. That picture is a little bit like what... What's going on here today? Ryan pointed that out last week. There are devoted followers of Jesus in this room. I hope, I hope that describes the great, vast majority. I hope the great crowd that's here are followers of Jesus, ready to hear His Word and obey Him. But there's also many in this room that don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, I ask you, please, I beg you to lean in anyway. Lean in and hear the words of the King of glory. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are here right now, draw near and listen carefully. 
to our Savior and our Lord and our King, Jesus. Because the Sermon on the Mount is for Christians. I've got written down here that I was going to repeat that three times. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians. This sermon is from the mouth of your King. This sermon is from the mouth of Jesus Christ to His disciples. And this first section called the Beatitudes describe Christians. These are descriptions of those that are in the kingdom of God, not prescriptions of how to get into the kingdom of God. Please make sure you know that. These, these eight Beatitudes are, are not ways to enter the kingdom, but ways that people live that are in the kingdom. Leonard Ravenhill, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, would say, you know why these are called the Beatitudes, right? Because they should be the attitude of every believer. He says this is normal Christianity. This is normal, the normal Christian life. And so when you read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, don't think, okay, I need to get myself to be more, more, more poor in spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need, to, you need to reverse that thinking. Instead, you need to think, okay, those that are in the kingdom of heaven already, they're the ones who are poor in spirit. Not you're in the kingdom because you're poor in spirit. You're poor in spirit because you're in the kingdom. Don't turn the Beatitudes into works. Don't turn this sermon into works. We're saved by grace. Saved by grace. So these Beatitudes are descriptions. Descriptions of the people of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Eight definitive marks of those who belong in the kingdom. And now if that's true... And how important is it for us to understand what these things mean and apply them to ourselves, to use this as a, as a grid to see if we are in the kingdom? These, these Beatitudes in sorts are a measure for a Christian. And so as we read through these and study these, I want you to look at yourself in light of these texts. In light of these Beatitudes, do these things describe you in any measure? Because I'm here to tell you, these things aren't natural. These things are supernatural. Works of God's grace by the power of His Holy Spirit. These things are promises for every believer. These are the new covenant promises. And so don't think of it as a standard you have to look up to, but as a a promise, a work of God's grace. And so, if that's the case, as you examine yourself and you do see these things in your life, in your heart, to any degree, praise God. Be assured, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are in the kingdom of God. Because they're promises. 
new covenant realities. And if you go through this and you hear this and you're like, man, this is, this is not me at all. Cry out to the Lord and say, I want this. I really want this. I want to be like this. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be your servant. I want to be your citizen. He'll answer that prayer. As we read these, I want you to notice that everyone has this three-part structure. There's this blessed, blessed are the, and then there's the beatitude itself, and then there's this blessing or this reward, like blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And a little note on that word blessed. There's been books written on this. But in short, the word literally means happy, but also implies this divine favor. God has smiled upon you. This divine fortune. God has been gracious to you. You are fortunate, therefore happy, because God has smiled upon you. And just like the blessings and the curses that we see in the Old Covenant, Jesus is announcing this blessedness here, and later in 23, He's going to pronounce these woes, these curses on hypocrites. Here he's going to talk about this inner work that's going on in the heart. And over there he's going to pronounce woes on those who only have external religious pretense. And so here, let's read the first 11 verses. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the very first beatitude is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice poor in spirit, not poor in cash. And what does poor mean? This is to have a lack of something. Like I'm poor in strength and poor in cash. But this is not what it's saying. It's saying poor in spirit. It means spiritually destitute. Spiritually bankrupt. And I want you to know, all Christians are like this. All Christians are 
poor in spirit. We're poor in spiritual merit on our own. We're poor in spiritual ability on our own. And we are convinced of it. We are convinced that we have no spiritual merit apart from Jesus Christ. Man, we are convinced that we have no spiritual ability apart from Jesus Christ. Man, we're broke. To be poor in spirit is to live convinced of your own spiritual bankruptcy. I don't have any merits. I have no spiritual merits of my own apart from Christ. None. I'm not a good person. See, Christians believe Romans 3, none's righteous, no, not one. That no one does good. We agree with Paul. I have nothing good that is in my flesh. Nothing. I have no righteousness of my own. I agree with the, the, the psalmist, Lord. If you should mark iniquity, who could stand? Not me. I agree with David. I have no good apart from you, Lord. None. Man, the scriptures are full of this. The hymns we sing are full of this. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, helpless. Is that you? You got any measure of an absence of spiritual merit or ability? Are you poor in spirit? Christians are convinced they are poor in spirit. They have no spiritual merit or ability. We believe exactly what Jesus said. Apart from me, he says, I can do nothing. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever have that broken spirit? You know how you can tell? How you pray. One of the last things Martin Luther ever said was, or wrote was, we are beggars, this is true. I like it all. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. This is what causes Christians to fly to the throne of grace for help in time of need. And we get answers. We get it. Not from ourselves, but from Jesus Christ, the one preaching these words. Is He your help? Is the Lord your strength? Is He your righteousness? Is He your fountain of grace? If He's not, you have none. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they possess the kingdom of God. There's the blessing. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Look, that blessing in and of itself, when you compare it to the beatitude, shows that it's all of grace. Man, we have absolutely nothing to bring. I can't find the price of admission to enter the kingdom of God. And it says, okay, 
That's all that's required. Nothing. You've got to be bankrupt. We have absolutely nothing to offer. Nothing but sin to bring. Yet, it says here, present tense, the kingdom of God is ours. The kingdom of heaven is ours. All of grace. All of grace. Why? Because Jesus came to save the poor in spirit. He preached a sermon before this in his hometown of Nazareth. He walks in the synagogue and the scrolls open to Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to do what? To preach the good news to the poor. And here he is on the mountain preaching to the poor in spirit. For saved by grace, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven right now, brothers and sisters. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. We're blessed. <laughs> if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who grieve. This is the kingdom of God. But understand, this is godly grief, godly sorrow, not worldly grief, because everybody mourns. This is a fallen world, and everybody grieves, but not everybody's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's the difference here? What's the difference between Christian grieving and the world grieving? It is an understanding of why. It's a biblical worldview. It's a right understanding of sin and the effects of sin. Everybody mourns, but Christians connected with sin. The world grieves over consequences. When they get caught, they cry. Everybody cries when people die. But there's no godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There's no grieving over the sin itself. But not us. All Christians mourn because of the sin and its effects. To mourn here means to grieve and groan because of sin. And because of the effects of sin in our lives, in our bodies, in our world. In creation. We see Peter weep bitterly. We see Paul unceasing anguish. We see him weep tears over the enemies of the cross. We hear Isaiah say, woe is me, I'm undone. We see Daniel sitting in sackcloth and ashes. How many times, man, this struck me the other day. How many times do you see people sitting in ashes? Saying, this is where I belong, burned to the ground. Dust. I think I wept because I don't weep like that. Christians mourn sin. Have you ever had a season of just grieving over your past sins? 
or, or moments of discouraging disappointment when you, when you realize that indwelling sin is still there? Do you long for the day when it's going to be gone? Christians mourn sin. We mourn our own sin. We mourn the sins of the world. Ryan, Ryan prayed this morning about just the, what we see in this world. Dustin often uses this phrase, a sin-soaked world. Man, I step it up a notch. Sin-ravaged world. We live in a bloodthirsty land. No shame. Celebration of sins of all sorts. Things that would never have even been mentioned are paraded. Does it grieve you? Has 2020 grieved you? My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Man, is that a heart that you have? We grieve our own sins. We, we, we look out and we grieve the sin that's in the world. We grieve the effects. Paul writes the whole section in Romans 8 about groaning. The creation is groaning. Do you read Ecclesiastes and you understand what the preacher's saying when he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's all vanity. All of creation is groaning. God has subjected it to futility because of sin. Do you understand Jesus when he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust are going to just eat it up. Or somebody's going to steal it. Do you mourn the effects of sin, especially death? Man, the world suppresses this truth more than anything I know. They, they suppress the truth about sin and its effect, especially death. We've become this society with this obsession for suppression. Man, we laugh when it's not funny. We medicate, we entertain, we eat, drink, and be merry, and we pretend to be merry. Addictions through the roof. But Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And you know what? He didn't, he didn't just mourn because his friend Lazarus was dead, did he? It's got to be more than that. He's fixing to raise him. He's fixing to raise him from the dead. Five minutes later, what's he mourning? We grieve sin and the effects. We mourn the effects of sin in death, but not as others do. The Bible teaches us that. We understand death more than they do. We also understand salvation. And we grieve as those, not like those who don't have hope. He says here, guess what? Those who mourn, they're going to be comforted. That's a promise. And that's a reality. That, that's, that's a promise and a reality. That's a, that's a now and forever thing. Like, like so many of these things. Because I want you to know that if you mourn sin, there is comfort. Where? The gospel. 
When you do fail and you grieve and mourn your own sin, don't forget there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, if that's not comfort, I don't know what is. There is no condemnation. We are comforted by resurrection, hope, Paul says we groan, but we hope. We groan, but we hope. For what? Resurrection. He says we grieve when people die, but not like those who don't have hope. What's our hope? Resurrection. Jesus is coming back. And Paul says, encourage one another with those words. Now. Be comforted now, brothers. Whoever you know. I talked to a brother this morning. Grandfather's dying. If he knows Christ, he's going to be raised from the dead. There's our hope. And when we're raised from the dead, guess what? God Himself is going to comfort us forever. God's going to dwell with us. He's going to wipe away every tear, symbol connected to every sorrow this world ever brought to you. Gone. No more death. No more sickness. No more coronavirus. No more masks. No more pain. No more ventilators. No more resuscitation. Resurrection forever. That's blessed. That's comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are going to inherit the earth. Not the violent, not the aggressive, not the self-assertive, not the self-serving, self-reliant, the meek. The one who have faith and humility. Where Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37. The same word Jesus puts on himself when he says, Take my yoke, I am gentle and lowly. Jesus is meek, he says. The same word is used later when Matthew shows us the scene of the King of Glory, the long-promised Messiah. He rides in on a stallion with 10,000 armies, right? No. Meek on a donkey. The eternal Son of God born in a manger. To be meek is to deny yourself and to, and to do so because you love God and you trust God. You wait for the Lord. And this comes from that quote that Jesus is pulling from Psalm 37. Psalm 37 teaches the people of God about the realities of the world. It teaches us to trust Him despite what we see. He says don't fret over the evildoers. The wicked, just because you see, you look around and everybody who's aggressive in the dog-eat-dog world, they're prospering. Don't envy that. Be still, he says. Be still. Wait for me. Trust me. They think they're going to win. But he says they will soon fade like grass. They'll soon fade like grass. He says in just a little while, The wicked will be no more. 
But guess what? The meek shall inherit the earth. You don't need to get it. You don't need to go get it. You got it. You get it? Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. Christians wait for the Lord. We trust the Lord. We discern the end. We don't assert ourselves. We don't slap back. We turn the other tree. Cheat. We don't join in with them. We don't have to take what's ours because we already have it. We're not going to gain the world by might or strength or politics or military, but by faith. Abraham sojourned in his own land, knowing it was his. David suffered under Saul, knowing he's going to be king. Moses despised the riches of Egypt for the great reward. We wait for the Lord. We don't serve ourselves. See, we're part of a different kingdom. We deny ourselves. We forego the present. We forego the rights. We follow Jesus. Who says the last is going to be first. The least, the greatest among you is going to be the least. The leader is going to be the one that serves. And who's the example? He says, I am. I came. Not, not to be served. Christ has a servant. The servant king. A servant's heart. A Christian has a servant's heart. And we don't serve ourselves. We serve the interest of Christ. This is what the citizens of heaven do. This is what the book of Philippians is all about. We seek the interest of Christ. We seek the interest of our brothers and sisters. We seek the interest of the gospel. We seek the interest of our king. And we wait on him. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's the reward. We have this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Don't worry about it. Don't fret. The aggressors will not win. The rat, run, the rat race runners will not win. The meek shall inherit the earth. Yes, the earth. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus on earth, on the new earth forever and ever. We're going to rule and reign with him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. We should notice something here that's totally different than the world. It says here we seek righteousness, not blessedness. What does the world seek? Hashtag blessed. That's what they seek. You ever... You ever see anybody use that to talk about imputed righteousness of Christ, growing in holiness, being persecuted, poor in spirit? No. New car. Hashtag blessed. They seek the blessing, not the righteousness. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, don't you lay up treasures on earth. He says, seek first what? His kingdom and your own righteousness? No, His righteousness. He says here, guess what? If you do that, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to be filled. So we've got to seek His kingdom, not this kingdom. We've got to seek 
His righteousness, not our righteousness. And we need to do it like a starving man. We need to realize that the righteousness we seek is far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees Jesus will preach to us. The righteousness we seek far exceeds that. As a matter of fact, it, it reaches to perfection. It's the righteousness of God. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here, to hunger and thirst for righteousness means to seek the righteousness of God like a starving man. Seek what you do not have. A man is starving and seeking food. Seek what you do not have. And remember, this is something you cannot gain. It's his righteousness. And he gives it freely for those who are in Christ. And so Christians seek this. First, we, we desperately seek forgiveness. You see, by the Holy Spirit, we've been made poor in spirit. We know we have no good, we have no ability, and we need to seek righteousness from Him. We seek forgiveness and justification. Remember that story that Jesus later tells about the tax collector that goes in and he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful. Me, a sinner, desperately seeking righteousness. And guess what happens? Jesus says, that man went home justified. He was satisfied, filled, justified with the righteousness of God because he had none of his own. <laughs> he has none of his own. That's what we do. We desperately seek forgiveness. We uh, fervently strive for holiness. Texts like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's pretty fervent. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How many times do you say, Lord, I want to be holy. I want to be holy. I want to be holy as you are holy. Make me holy, Lord. And we earnestly long for the day when it will be fully and finally realized. We long for the day when we see him and we will be like him. Perfect. In every way. And this text shows that promise. Look at what it says. Those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, guess what? Here's the promise. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be filled. Filled with the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So many great texts. Not having a righteousness of my own. But that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God. I want righteousness from God. I seek first His righteousness. That's what it means to be blessed. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To be merciful. To be like Christ. To be full of compassion and sympathy. And care and concern for others and, and pity. All coupled with action. <laughs> All coupled with action. And remember, this is, this is mercy that flows from mercy. This is not mercy to try to gain mercy. Don't twist it around. 
We act merciful because we have and because we will receive mercy from a merciful God. Our new heart knows this according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. And it's that new heart from God according to His great mercy in which we overflow with mercy. So this is what it means. The merciful, to be merciful is to exhibit action, to exhibit this compassion of God out of this overflow of grace that we have. Like Paul says, man, the grace of the Lord has overflowed for me. Man, I hope that's true for you. I hope you feel that way about God's grace. Grace upon grace. And we want to extend grace. And that's what we do. We care. Christians care. And we act. We don't just say we're merciful. We don't just have compassion without action. We give up our tunic. We give up our cloak. We go the extra mile. We don't close our heart when we see our brother in need. We even pray for our enemies. But we don't do it just for the sake of charity. We do it for the name of the Lord. Because we care about suffering. You've heard it before. This is John Piper quote. Christians care about all suffering. Especially eternal suffering. Suffering. So our compassion is always coupled with the gospel. We care about and for the sick and the poor and the fatherless and the weak and the helpless and those many, many, many injustices that are in this sin-ravaged world. We mourn over that sin and, and we care about those needs and those sufferings, but we care about their soul because we understand this. We care about the gospel. We care about the glory of Jesus Christ. And we give and we act in the name of the Lord Jesus. The merciful shall receive mercy. This is the gospel. That God's mercy towards sinners, that's the grounds and the guarantee of the gospel. That we have received mercy, we shall receive mercy. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of our works, but because of what? His mercy. His great mercy. What a blessing to have mercy from God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, not hand, or mouth, or head, or anything else, because it all flows from where? The heart. In, in all this, Jesus is pointing back to Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? In other words, who, who's going to see God? Who's going to be able to stand and see God? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
And man, this whole sermon, this whole sermon addresses heart issues and hypocrisy. It addresses the heart and the external pretenses. I mean, this whole sermon starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the physical, not the temporal, not the external. He says, you've heard it said about adultery, but I say to you, if you looked at love with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Anybody can put up a front. We've all put up a front. But God knows the heart. And here Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So how in the world? God knows your heart. And, and sadly, I know my own heart. How in the world can a sinner have a pure heart? There is only one way to have a pure heart. God's got to give you one. Just like that righteousness from God. To be pure in heart means to be, to be obedient from a new heart that's been given and empowered by God. This is the truth. Christians have a new heart given to them by God. This is the great old promise that is a reality for you and me, brothers and sisters. He promised and he has done. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and, and a new spirit that I'm going to put within you. I'm going to remove that old heart of stone. I'm going to put in a new heart, a new heart of flesh. And this is what happens. Is we become obedient from the heart. Not the law, not some checklist, but from the heart and a new spirit he's put within us and he's causing us to walk in his ways. Paul says, thanks be to myself. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Do you not know, Paul said? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Can you get more pure than that? And the pure in heart will see God. That, that, somehow that never really lands on us. I don't think there's any way that we can comprehend the significance of that. We're going to see God. It's actually already begun. This is a staggering promise that begins at conversion when, behold, the glory of God is shined into our heart. And for the first time, those old gods of imagination, that old idolatry, well, I think God's like this, begin to be smashed. And we begin to see God for who He is according to the Word in a way that we never have. This new opened heart 
where God's love and revelation and glory just keeps getting poured in from His Word, empowered by the Spirit. The pure in heart will see God, and so it will be fully and finally when He comes. When He comes, no longer will we see in a mirror, but then face to face. When He comes, we shall see Him as He is when Christ comes. Again, we're going to see His face. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's another good place to see what the opposite is to understand the beatitude. We're talking about peacemaking, not quarreling. Blessed are the peacemakers, not war makers. Blessed are the peaceable, not quarrelsome. The reconciler, not the instigator. Think about it. What causes fights? What causes divisions? What causes strife and arguments and quarrels and wars? Is it not sin? James says it's, says it's sin. You covet, cannot obtain, therefore you fight. So if, if sin is being put to death, so is strife. <laughs> so is strife. And then without strife, there's peace. And brothers and sisters, we know peace. We know real peace because we were enemies of God. Haters of God. But now we've been reconciled as Ryan talk this morning. We've been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. Enemies of God have now been made sons of God. That's why we're reconcilers. That's why we're peacemakers. So my definition here is to be a peacemaker means that you're a reconciler because of something. Because you've been reconciled to God. You have peace with God. Don't underestimate that either. I'm glad Brian read that verse. That was not scheduled, by the way. We have peace with God. God Himself has reconciled us to Himself. He's made peace with us even while we were at war, even while we were sinners. He made peace with us by slaughtering His own Son. And so since we know real peace, since we know real reconciliation, we seek peace with men. We seek peace with all men. Whereas, wherein it's, it's possible for us to do so, that's what we're going to do. We seek reconciliation because we know what reconciliation is. Because God's reconciled us. We see this through Jesus' sermon. He says, be reconciled to your brother. Forgive Pray for those even who persecute you. Listen to this. Christians don't leave things undone. Christians don't stay mad. Christians don't stay offended. Christians don't walk away. That's not peace. That's not reconciliation. We make peace. 
Sometimes we even jump in and mediate and facilitate peace and reconciliation between other people. But most of all, we are called as ambassadors to Christ to seek out and proclaim reconciliation between God and man. Well, there's, there's the ultimate peacemaker. The one who says, please be reconciled to God. The one who preaches the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You who hate God, you can have peace with God. Because Jesus died in your place. The ministry of reconciliation. And, and those people, those peacemakers, those reconcilers, guess what they're called? Sons of God. That's what it says. And why? Because we have been predestined and called to be just like the greatest peacemaker that ever lived, who is the Son of God. He's the one who made peace. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who's caused our adoption as sons to come about. God Himself has poured the Spirit of His Son, the great peacemaker, into our hearts. We're God's children. Again, we're God's children. We're sons of God. Now this last one. Not, most people probably don't like. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted. You've never seen that hashtag. Blessed. Man, I'm Blessed be hanging upside down being whipped here in a Russian prison for the name of Christ blessed blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven isn't it interesting you go from peacemaker to persecuted from, from reconciliation to hostility Get this, persecution is a beatitude. Like, I think we can just let that slip right past this. Persecution is a beatitude. And, and it's the only one that's actually repeated. And it's the only one that switches from third person to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and speak falsely. And so get this. Those that are blessed by God. Next time you hear somebody say, man, I'm blessed by God. Remind them of this. Those who are blessed by God will be persecuted by men. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in some way. We may not rot in a prison, but Thanksgiving's going to be tough when we bring up the gospel. Look at why we're persecuted. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
We're persecuted not for doing wrong, but for doing right. What a wicked world. The, the meek, the meek are going to be persecuted because men are violent. The ones who seek righteousness are going to be persecuted because men love darkness. The merciful, the merciful are going to be persecuted because men have no mercy. The, the pure in heart are going to be persecuted because the unregenerate heart is full of hate. Peacemakers are going to be persecuted because men don't really want peace. We're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake. We're going to be persecuted because of Jesus. What it says in verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Why? On my account, Jesus said. He makes it clear this is the root. This is the root of all Christian persecution. The world hates you and me, brother and sister in Christ. The world hates us because the world hates Jesus just like we used to. Jesus says, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you. If you love Jesus, be prepared to be hated by everybody else. We're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake, because of Jesus, and because of the word of God. Look at verse 12. They're persecuted. These, these same persecution happened to all the prophets. From the very beginning, anybody who preaches Thus saith the Lord. Is persecuted or killed. Beaten. Maligned. Just because you proclaim the gospel. Because people hate the gospel. Because it's offensive. You know why? Because the gospel tells men that they are wicked and vile. Enemies of God. Rebels that need to turn from their sins. It tells them that their sin is so great that nothing can atone but the blood of the eternal Son of God. That's how wicked you are. I have to slaughter the Son of God to pay for your sins. And the gospel warns of judgment. Judgment's coming on you. And it demands repentance. And it demands only one way. You come to King Jesus right now and you bow. We will not have him reign over us. That's what, the, that's what the world says. But beloved, there comes a time in your life when the Holy Spirit comes to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he empties you of all your self-righteousness and spiritual ability. And you're poor in spirit. And you cry out and say, forgive me, Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The gospel is offensive. Don't ever remove the offense. You'll empty it of its power, Paul said. You'll also empty it of its sweetness. But it's only sweet to those who possess the kingdom of heaven. The persecuted have a great reward in heaven. Suffering then glory. Don't ever forget that. Suffering, then glory. As Paul says in my favorite chapter, this momentary light 
affliction. Man, it's actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory that you can't even understand. And so do this. Wait for the Lord. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And man, get this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God from the lips of him, of God himself. He opened his mouth. I hope he's speaking to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our God and our King and we are the sheep of your pasture. We are the citizens of your kingdom. And we attribute it all to you. Give thanks to the Father. You, Father, have qualified us and you, by power, have transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You died. You redeemed us. You bought our forgiveness. We owe you everything. And you ask for nothing except to come and follow you. Please help us do that. Please help us to be followers, faithful followers of Jesus. Lord, produce these Beatitudes in us more and more. Thank you for the grace we see. We want more. We want more. We want more. We do love you. you you've helped us, Lord, to love you. We love you and we exalt your name here in this place. It's in your name, Lord, your name that we pray. Amen. Praise God from Thank you.